Okay, well, Cam's given us a good intro into a little snapshot of grace, and we're going to be talking a lot about this concept of um, grace and exploring it a bit. Now, it's, it's a good topic to talk about because not only is it fundamental to the gospel, but it's, outside of a Christian context, it's just not something that makes a lot of sense. And it's not something that really will come up in everyday conversation. This idea of grace being unmerited favour, it's, it's, it's kind of foreign to most people. It's borderline irrelevant. It's not something that will generally come up in a week-to-week conversation. But few things are more important to really get our head around when it comes to um, the gospel and Jesus Christ than this concept of grace. Now... How many of you remember the picture that should flick up on the slide now? See if you remember this person. Who remembers him? Yeah, Sammy, who is he? Saddam Hussein, the fifth president of Iraq. Now, during his reign, he created an extremely strong bunch of security forces which guarded and, and created essentially a dictatorship over Iraq. Now, we combine that with um, nationalising the oil resources and taking control of the state-owned banks so that he had this combination of both military and economic force. And as a result, through that, he created a pretty strong and incredibly strong dictatorship. He put Sunni Arabs in their positions of power and then oppressed other minority people groups such as the most notable being the Shia people or the Kurdish people. Now, many people will try to predict um, the numbers of people that lost their life under Saddam's regime. The smallest and most conservative of those estimates place it at over 250,000 people. Now, on the 20th of March 2003, there was a coalition led by the US that invaded Iraq to overthrow Saddam from power. Within three weeks, they toppled Baghdad. But Saddam uh, was nowhere to be found until Operation Red Dawn on the 13th of December, where he was found in a bunker um, in a farmhouse near Tikrit. Now, put yourself in that scene. Brutal dictator, notorious by reputation, in a position of vulnerability, what do you do? Do you extend a hand of grace? Do you hold him to account for his actions? Now, he was taken into custody by the US and pretty soon he was charged by an Iraqi special tribunal that was um, set up, charged with crimes against humanity. And then on the 5th of November 2006, he was found guilty. And on 30th of December 2006, he was executed by hanging. World leaders were widely quoted as being pleased or, or pleased to see that the former leader of Iraq had been held to account. Now, the concept of grace, again, is not a concept that is generally found in too many places outside of the gospel. It's not a concept that makes much sense. Today's culture will say those who have done wrong should be held to account for their actions. Those who don't deserve it, well, they shouldn't receive it. Those who have fallen short, well... They should get what's coming their way. But what I love about, uh, one thing I love about the Bible is that over and over again, through in so many different ways and through the lives of so many different people, God challenges us and encourages us 
to return to and think about and consider this concept of grace. He wants us to think about the significance of this concept of grace and he wants us to experience the power of this concept of grace in our own lives. Now to get a sense of this, we're actually going to look at a different dictator. We're actually going to go into the Old Testament in 2 Kings 5 and we're going to look at a different regime. It's actually the regime of Syria, which we hear a lot about today. And it involves um, the head of the military of the Syria at the time that it was in um, 2 Kings. His name was Naaman. And he's an amazing picture of grace. And he's an amazing picture of someone whose life was completely transformed by grace. Before we get into it, um, why don't we pray and then we can talk through 2 Kings 5 together. Dear God, we thank you for the time together. We thank you that we can gather and we can reflect on you. We can, we can reflect on what you have done. And we can reflect on the life that you want us to live and the way that you want us to experience a grace that will not be found anywhere outside of you. Lord, we thank you that this concept of grace has incredible power. And we pray that you'll help us as a group of people um, experience that in just a small little way tonight. And everyone said... Amen. I encourage you, you can get your Bibles, you can look at 2 Kings 5 if you want. The key verses are going to be on the screen as we work our way through it as well. So Naaman, let's read about him. Naaman, the commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor, because by him the Lord had given him victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. What do we learn about Naaman? What do we know about him? Well, he's, he's the commander of uh, the army of a different nation, the nation of Syria. Syria had oppressed a number of the people groups around them. They were a very strong um, and oppressive nation. And you can see that by the fact in the verses that follow, Naaman actually has a slave girl from Israel, clearly who was brought into his custody, brought into captivity, into slavery under him as a result of another successful Syrian raid into one of their neighboring areas. They had incredible might and power, and that's reflected in this verse. He's described as being a great man, high in favor with the king of Syria. As the leader of the military, he would have been effectively the right-hand man to the king. In fact, it's interesting because Naaman, the the word Naaman comes from a Hebrew verb that has the idea of being delightful or beautiful or well-formed. So it creates this image of someone who is successful, someone who is good-looking, someone who has all this status and who is powerful, who represents uh, an incredibly successful man who is second in charge to the king. This is Naaman, but he was a leper. Now, what does that mean? Well, many think of leprosy as a skin disease. Leprosy, if I can talk about it for a second, leprosy is actually a disease of the nerves. And it attacks the nerves so that it it inhibits the ability of the body to send warning signals to the brain. Okay, Signals like pain. Pain is your most common warning sign. So if, you, if something is hot, you've boiled a, a kettle, you touch it, immediately you'll bring it away because it will hurt. Your, your body will say, that's dangerous, take it off. You can imagine if you lose that sensation, you don't know what you're doing is wrong. Okay? And so these people would often have incredible deformities and, and problems because they would have infections and damage that's caused by the fact that their body is just not sending these warning signals anymore. 
And it was combined with um, this disfigurement that could happen, both in terms of their skin but also their bones. It resulted in twisting or curling of limbs and fingers, horrible disease. And it would take you down a road where ultimately these infections and this damage that was caused you because of the, the damaged sensations that you have would ultimately take your life. There was no cure for this disease. Now, leprosy is still around today. I think it's called Hansen's disease or something like that. Uh, but there's cures for it now. They can treat it with modern medicine. But you can imagine in this day, uh, it was effectively a death sentence. It was just a matter of what time and what form it would take for you. As a result of this, people were generally isolated from society. Uh, it was interpreted as God's curse on them effectively, that God must be judging them and therefore they would be inflicted with leprosy. You knew that this condition would ultimately cause their health to get worse and worse and worse until it would ultimately take their life. Naaman had an incredible position. He had incredible wealth and power. He had incredible status. But he was a leper. Now, when you read and try to engage with the Old Testament, it's really important to ask ourselves what spiritual truths and I be reminded of through these physical circumstances. Because in spiritual terms, the Bible doesn't speak of leprosy. It speaks of a different concept called sin. Sin is a description that the Bible uses to describe a state of our heart which says, I uh, care more about my needs than I do of God. I place my own desires and my own priorities and my own wants and needs above those of God. I want to rule my life and determine my steps rather than let God take that position. Sin is effectively almost a state of our heart rather than any individual action. And the Bible tells us that like leprosy, sin is a problem. What makes sin a problem? Well, let's look at some of the parallels between sin and leprosy. Like leprosy, sin is an insidious disease that takes over a person's life. It might start innocuous. It might start, uh, you may not notice it at first, but its effects soon become apparent and it takes over a person's existence. Leprosy started with the nerves and then works its way around the body. In the same way, sin starts at the heart and then it filters out to take control of the way you live your life. Leprosy, as I talked about it, it takes away those pain sensations or warning signs that told you there was trouble or gave signals to your mind about what was going on. And in the same way, sin desensitizes us. It desensitizes us to what God might be trying to say to us through the Holy Spirit. It desensitizes us to the warning signs that we would otherwise receive about the things we are, we are potentially engaging in. And so God becomes more and more and more removed from the picture. And just like leprosy was the beginning of a road that led to death, well, the Bible describes sin as a road which leads to spiritual death in the form of a separation from him now, a removal from that presence, and a separation and an eternal death that is seen in its fulfillment on that day of judgment in eternity. But you know what is just as important to remember is leprosy. Just like leprosy didn't distinguish between individuals, okay? It didn't distinguish between the rich or the poor, the male or the female, the old or the young. Naaman had incredible status, but he wasn't immune from leprosy. In the same way, sin doesn't distinguish. Sin doesn't distinguish between you or I. 
male or female, Christian heritage or not. It's a wrestle for all of us. It's a reality for all of us. It's something we all have to deal with. None of us are perfect. I'm Paul, but I'm a sinner. We heard from Cam and his amazing journey with God. But even within that, it's clear, Cam's a sinner. These guys singing worship songs up the front, I love them, but they're a sinner. Sin doesn't distinguish. We all have a problem that we need to deal with. We all have a problem with sin. So what does Naaman do about his problem? Well, I'll just summarize for you what happens in verses 2 to 7. Okay, His slave girl, the Israelite slave girl, says to him, hey, there's a prophet in, in, in Samaria, in Israel, there's a prophet who can heal you from your disease. You should go speak to him. She was referring to the prophet Elisha at that time. So Naaman goes to the king of Syria, tells them what they're told, And the king of Syria then writes this letter, gathers up these gifts and sends them to, not to the prophet, sends them to the king of Israel. And the letter that was delivered, so then Naaman and all these these gifts arrive uh, at the doorstep of the king of Syria effectively. And the letter says, essentially, I've sent you the commander of my military with all of this expensive stuff. Now cure his leprosy. Now, you've got to love this move and these actions from Naaman and the king of Syria, okay? Because they were told to just go see the prophet and he would be healed, full stop. That was all they were told to do. That was all they were told was required. But instead, they go to the king of Syria and they go with all of this financial and political clout and they await healing from the king of Syria. Now, to their defense, this would have been customary. This was already unusual. It would have been even more unusual for the king of Syria to go to some average person's house, with, present the commander of his military and says, now you need to heal them. It's more customary to go to their, um, their representative of another nation, if you like. So the king speaking to the king. So he goes to the king of Israel and sends all these special gifts so as, as a gesture of not necessarily friendship, but as a sign that this isn't a threat, um, I'm asking something in return from you. But the king's response is interesting in verse 7. It says that he, he tears his clothes out of fear. He says, am I God? Am I God that I can do something about this? Because he knows he can't cure leprosy. Only God can do that. Am I God to kill and to make alive that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Then he says, only consider, see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. Thinking, surely he knows I can't cure this man. And then he's thinking, he's brought all these expensive gifts and things. If I don't cure him, then he's probably just going to get angry, be offended, and use it as an excuse to raid my nation again. You know, the Syrians did what they thought was right. They used whatever financial, economic, political means they could do, but it was never going to cure Naaman of his condition, was it? Now, before we start getting too excited, though, and criticizing Naaman and the king of Syria for what they've done, let's just stop and think for a second about how we tend to respond to our problem of sin. You see, Naaman did something right. He did something that we can learn from. He identified his leprosy as a problem, and he wanted to do something about it. 
He didn't pretend his leprosy wasn't an issue. He didn't wait until the leprosy got worse. He wanted to deal with it. He wanted it healed. Yes, so often, I think we don't acknowledge our sin for what it is. I think we don't want to call it what it is. I think we don't want to take any action to deal with it. It's a lot easier to convince ourselves that we are good people, that we're generally living good lives, that on balance, um, I'm going in the right direction. It's a lot easier to identify us as someone who perhaps has a great Christian heritage, so surely I'm okay, I'm doing all these good things. It's a lot easier to rationalize those things in your head than it is to come to the conclusion that I'm a person with a problem who needs help. This world is full of distractions, dangers, influences, temptations, addictions. There are so many insidious things that creep into our lives and we don't often recognize them for the problem and the issue that they are. Pornography, internet and phone addictions, unhealthy sexual relationships, drinking problems, pride, greed, our focus on our own ambitions, our reliance on our own security and dependence, our fixation on on doing things the right way, bitterness and unforgiveness that can be in our lives, constant worry and anxiety, all of these things are struggles that we wrestle with and we often don't acknowledge it as the problem that it is or we wait for it to get a little bit worse before we want to deal with it. We need to identify these things as a problem and be willing to do something about it because if we are sick with sin and we pretend it's not a problem, we will never find healing. Naaman identified his issue and he tried to take action to do something about it. He had that desire to be different, to have this burden taken off his shoulders. He just went about it the wrong way. See, what he did was he tried to earn it, didn't he? Presents himself to the king. All of these expensive gifts. All of this impressive cavalry and fanfare. He went to the highest person in the land with all of his influence and he said, get me healed now. But healing is never earned. It is given. It doesn't matter how much we offer. It doesn't matter how hard we try. It doesn't matter who we are or what our background might be. It doesn't matter how good a life we think we are and it doesn't matter what book we happen to be reading. Healing comes from God. Unless we turn to him, we will never experience the healing and the forgiveness and the grace that he offers. We will never find the forgiveness and life that can only be found in God. Here the king just turns to him and says, Am I God? You're looking in the wrong place. You know, maybe tonight God is telling you to start turning to him. Maybe not tonight God is saying, don't turn to anything else. Don't turn to anyone else. Don't pretend you don't need him anymore. Turn to him. Turn to him. And this is where Elisha now enters the story in verse 8. 
So he makes contact with the king of Syria. Sorry, king of Israel. And it says, When Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come to me, that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. Now, it's interesting. If you look at those words closely, what he doesn't say is, Bring Naaman to me because I can fix him. Doesn't say, bring him to me because I'll make things okay for you, king. Don't worry about it. Says, bring him to me so that he might know that there is a prophet. Now, why was it important that Naaman know that there was a prophet? Well, what did a prophet represent? A prophet was a representative of God. A prophet was someone through whom God would um, work, a person through whom God would speak. And so coming to see a prophet by that, he is implying that he wanted Naaman to encounter God. It actually wasn't so much about the leprosy. It was about Naaman coming to the point where he would encounter God, that he would know that there is a prophet. In the same way, God wants us to encounter him. He doesn't want us to try and earn our way out of our problems. He doesn't want us to convince ourselves that we don't have any problems. He wants us to encounter him through the greatest and eternal prophet, that the only eternal prophet that ever lived, the prophet of Jesus Christ, his one and only son. God says, come to him that you might know that there is a one true God, that Jesus is the greatest ever prophet, and encounter him. To encounter him, to allow him through Jesus, to tackle our sin problems and to provide the healing and life of forgiveness that can only be found in him. So Elisha says, come to me, send him to me, so that he might know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman arrives at the door of Elisha. And he arrives there, I like this, he arrives there with all of his chariots and horses. You can imagine what's all of a sudden appeared outside Elisha's house. It's not just Naaman, it's all of this conclave, it's all of this, all the cavalry, the horses, all the fanfare, all the, all the ceremony that goes along with, a, with the presence of the commander of the military. And what does he actually do? It says, Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry, and he went away, saying, Behold, I thought he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the Lord his God, and I like this, wave his hands over the place and cure the leper. Are not the rivers of Damascus better than the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? And he turned and went away in, went away in rage. You know, encountering and following God will often look different from what we expect. Naaman was clearly expecting that when the commander of the military presents at your door, you at least go and greet him yourself. You wouldn't be expecting him to come out and want an autograph. This is a second in charge of the king of Syria presented at his door and he doesn't even show up himself. He sends a messenger. And then you can see the expectation was he was going to come out and not just come out, call upon this amazing act of God, wave his hands around and do something incredible and all of a sudden he would be healed. He was expecting the miraculous all of a sudden to just happen right there and then. But it didn't pan out the way he expected 
a messenger comes out and it says, you can go to the muddy waters of the Jordan and wash there seven times. Saying, well, I'm going to wash. Surely it makes more sense for me to wash in the beautiful clean rivers of Syria. It doesn't make any sense for me to be cleaned by going to the putrid muddy waters of the Jordan. So at this point, it's seeming all like a big practical joke, and so he leaves angry. In the same way, well, in a different way, but in a parallel, encountering Jesus can often be a different experience from what we expect. You know, we can sometimes expect this life-changing moment where all of a sudden we'll be introduced to this super spiritual existence, we'll have this intimate daily walk with him, and sometimes it might be like that, but often it's a little bit different. We can expect that an encounter with Jesus will suddenly take all of our problems away and suddenly everything will make sense and everything will become clear and everything will be a lot easier. But for some people it might be like that, but often it's not. We can expect that Jesus will suddenly make life easier and that grace won't really require any sacrifice. Can't I just go back to the water of Syria and wash there? But following Jesus is not like that. Following Jesus is rarely like the beautiful rivers of Syria. It's often a lot like the muddy waters of the Jordan. It's a life of humility. It's a life of sacrifice. It's a life of obedience that takes us wherever he leads us. But most importantly, it's a life of faith. It's a life that, the gospel, even though the gospel may not make sense to me, faith that it's the power of God to those who believe. You know, healing for Naaman was not about where he washed. It wasn't about water of the Jordan versus water of Syria. It's about whether he was willing to listen and believe and follow in faith that there was an all-powerful God who could heal him of his problem. You know, we need to remember that the cross didn't make a lot of sense either. The cross certainly weren't the beautiful rivers of Damascus. Here Jesus is, perfect in every way, the only son of God, at the right hand of God. He was the ruler of legions of angels, yet he emptied himself of those things. He came to be a man and walk a lonely road to the, that ended in his brutal execution on a cross. That's... That's following God into the muddy waters of the Jordan. And that doesn't make a lot of sense in human terms. But it is the power of God to those who are willing to believe in it, to those who are willing to place their faith in Jesus and say, you know, wherever you go, I'm going to take up my cross too and I'm going to follow, even if it is in to the muddy waters of the Jordan. How might God be wanting you to encounter him tonight? How might he be wanting you to listen to the prompting of his spirit, to, to respond to him in faith, no matter what waters that might lead you into? No matter how different his plan for you might be from what you expect. You hear that in Cam. How different life with Jesus is from what you expect, how different the roads are that he can lead you down. But look at what happens with Naaman then. 
Verse 13, his servants plead with him. They say, it says, his servants came near to him and said, my father, you can hear that genuine sense of, of urging of Naaman. They don't call him commander, it's like my father. It is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? You, know, you can hear the, the sincere pleading in the tone of what they say. It's like they're, they're urging Naaman to listen. He's given you the opportunity to be healed. Don't turn your back on this. Don't turn your back on the chance to have this issue dealt with. You know, it's so easy to do. It is so easy to turn our back on the voice of God prompting our heart. It is so easy to listen to what he might be saying to us and to turn our back and go the other way, saying, I'm not willing to go there. I'm not willing to believe in that. I'm just, I'll hang out for a little bit longer. I'm not willing to explore the road. The cost feels great. The sacrifice too much. People will say certain things. I just don't feel ready. But there actually isn't an alternative road to healing. Naaman didn't have another option. There was nowhere else he was going to find the sort of healing and the cure that he was after. And we can't turn our back on the voice of God and still expect to experience his grace. And so he turns around and it says, He obeyed the word of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child. It's like he's given this new life. All of a sudden, he's not just made clean. It's like he goes all the way back to day zero. You're given a whole new chance here like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. What we can see here so clearly is that faith and obedience is linked to healing and new life. You can see it so abundantly clear, and this is the power of grace, that even though we all have a sin problem from which, from which we don't deserve to be delivered, even though we have a sin problem which we can't earn our way out of, when we have faith that his word is true, when we believe in the prophet of Jesus Christ, when we are willing to follow him wherever that might lead us, he offers us healing and a new life that we simply could never earn ourselves. A healing and a new life that would never be due to us because of who we are or anything that we've done, but a healing and a new life that is nevertheless given to us freely when we follow him and when we're willing to follow him into whatever waters that might lead us into. Naaman was ultimately willing to go into the muddy waters of Jordan. And Jesus was ultimately willing to take that road all the way to the cross where he bore our sin on that tree so that through his death and resurrection we could have life and healing and an eternal blessing that could never be taken away. And that we knew that without that we would be lost. We had no hope. But through that all of a sudden we had that hope. And we have that hope now when we listen to his voice and we have faith in what he's saying and we're willing to obey it to the end. Faith and obedience is clearly linked with new healing and new life. You know, I don't know what your leprosy might be tonight. 
I've had a good think about what it is for me. You know, only it's between God is the only one who can reveal to you what that leprosy, what that issue is for you, what that struggle and wrestle is for you, which is damaging your walk with God, which is holding you back. But I do know that each of us, irrespective of what that looks like, each of us is in desperate need of his grace. And none of us can find that grace anywhere other than in him, Jesus Christ, the one and only Son of God who died so that we might have life and have it to the full. The challenge is to listen to him, to believe in what he's saying, and to be willing to obey it in whatever waters that leads us to. Because when we do these things, we receive back grace, life-changing grace, a grace that lifts our burdens, a grace that carries us through our struggles, a grace that breathes life and healing into our soul, that shapes us into Jesus' likeness, and that gives us an internal inheritance that can never be taken away. We can fall and we can mess up, but it is a grace that is with us forever. And it can deliver us daily when we come back to him. As a church and as a group of individuals, let's make sure we don't turn our back on this gift of grace. It cost Jesus everything, but he offered it up because he knew that without it, we had nothing. We had no hope. We had no way out. But let's not stay in that state. Let's not stay stuck in that position. Let's listen, believe, and be willing to follow him in whatever waters that is, whatever journey that might look like. Because a journey that leads to Jesus is a journey that will change our lives forever. It's a journey that will never let us be the same. And it's a journey that goes all the way to eternal life. And so it's the only journey worth taking. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we just thank you for um, the story of Naaman. We thank you for the reminder of grace that even though there's nothing we could do to deserve it, even though there's nothing we could do to earn our way, Lord, we thank you that Jesus died and rose again so that it might be given to us when we believe in him. Lord, help us to identify where we have issues that need to be dealt with with you. Help us to identify the sin we have in our life. Help us to identify the struggles and the wrestles with we have, which we have and turn to you and take hold of your promise that you will be with us forever that you will mould us into the likeness of Jesus, that you will provide us with healing and a new life that we can't find anywhere else. Lord, we pray that we'll take hold of that promise this, this evening. In your name, and everyone said, Amen.